gets hit. Ball up for grabs. Picked off by Smith. Malcolm Smith. All alone. No flags. Touchdown, Seattle. Don, I just woke up. I think I fell asleep around uh, around eight minutes left in the second quarter of the Super Bowl. It's terrible. It's so boring. <laughs> We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but welcome to uh, Season 4, Episode 3 of the Sportscasters. It's February 4th, 2014, as we await yet another winter snowstorm. Winter is, is back for real this year. Winter yeah, had w- Winter had been on a break, kind of. Right. Like, it's been around, and it's been cold, and there's been snow. But this year, winter is uh, the real deal. Yeah, I wonder what that says about our summer. Like some some farmer out there would know. Like this means we're gonna get a nasty, humid summer or a rainy summer. I, I don't know. Hopefully, people will tell you this is evidence of global warming. Hopefully, what this means about the summer is that it's gonna be like seventy-one the day of my wedding. Seventy-one. <laughs> yeah. Sunny. Yeah. It's just not hot. Right. You know, I'd even take like fifty-one. My wedding was the opposite. It ended up it was, raining, and it was super humid. It was hot. very, very hot, yeah. I recall. I was there. Uh, great show for you today. Jonah Carey is going to stop by to talk to us about some baseball stuff that we've been wanting to talk to with him before we get him on the next time, which is going to be focused on his book, which comes out in March, which we'll talk about more in the book club update later. So one last chance to get Jonah Carey on before it's all book talk. When he's on the following time. Also, Luke Wynn is going to join us today to talk about college basketball. Many of you probably just realized that college basketball was going on when the Super Bowl ended and you decided it's time to look for other things to do sports-wise. Or maybe you picked up on some of that incredible uh, Syracuse-Duke game that was on Saturday night the day before the Super Bowl, which uh, was really, really a great night for sports in the city of Syracuse. Um, and a great night for college basketball as well. So we will talk to Luke Wynn about that. And we will talk to Ed Sherman of the Sherman Report, who is also the author of the February Book Club Book of the Month, which I didn't even know we were going to have until I booked Ed Sherman, and he told me, hey, I wrote a book, and it comes out this month. Cool. So we got all kinds of things with guests that have books coming out and sports that aren't football and we're not going to do much Super Bowl on this show because that's probably everywhere and it sucked anyway. But uh, <laughs> let's get into three things and we can at least do a minute on it. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> I went to a Super Bowl party. It's the first one I've been to in a few years. It's actually probably the first Super Bowl party I've been to since the one that I hosted for the Saints Super Bowl. Okay. Just been kind of laying low with Tammy and Colson the last couple of years watching the game. As we talked about last week, it's totally screwed up the way things are done with the Super Bowl because if you have a job on Monday, Super Bowl parties can be 
Right. Tough on your week. That's compounded when the game's really bad too. And you're just staying there for squares. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get you off track or anything. But that was my thought when the game was bad. Was like, I would love. I have like a group of my friends over. I would love to do. (laughs) No, I don't even need them to leave. I I don't don't worry so much about lack of sleep. I function pretty well. But I have. There's like a million things I would have rather been doing with that group of friends than watching the football game. But I feel like culturally obligated in case something silly happens or whatever. Because. It was pretty much over at the at the half. I mean, they had the greatest offense ever, I guess, historically, uh, statistically. But there was no way they were coming back. But it's like, well, I got to watch this because uh, there's going to be a Spider-Man 2 commercial and uh, whatever. I mean, I don't want to miss something everyone's going to be talking about tomorrow. It reminded me a lot of the Saints and the Seahawks' first game where it just started really bad for Denver, and they just could never get it back. Right. Uh, Seattle sensed the weakness early, and they just stepped on Denver and pounded them into the turf and into Den- oblivion. Denver's D, to be fair, gave them every chance as bad as the offense Similar to the way the Saints did in that game. They hung in as best as they could, considering the way the game right. had been going. I mean, but- Denver gave up two points on offense. Then after the free kick, they only gave up a field goal, and then they only gave up a field goal on the next drive. So you're only down eight, which is one score and a two-point conversion, but they just never got anything going. Then the pick six happens, which we played off the top, and then... Didn't it look like their game plan never changed? I mean, I'm not an X and O's guy so much, but it looked like they were like, this is our game plan, we're just going to do it. And you've got the guy back there that's known for audibling and making adjustments, and it looked like their game plan never changed throughout that whole game. Everything about it stunk. I've said many times on this show I didn't like the Seahawks. I never said they weren't very good. Uh, They proved they were. They were the best team week one probably, and they've been the best team uh, all the way through, and they get their Super Bowl, and they get their parade in uh, Seattle, and I guess if I have to look for a bright side, Pearl Jam's probably happy. Sure. So we got that going for us. Yeah. And uh, other than that, I really don't have anything else to say about the Super Bowl. No, maybe the worst ever. I think the only thing that saved it, I, the worst one in my memory still is Giants-Baltimore. And that's only because in this one at least you had the idea that well, it is Peyton Manning, and if they get to this, they can only get to this. And in that game, I think the Giants had uh, Kerry Collins. Collins. Yeah. So you didn't really even have that illusion there. So, yeah, terrible game. Uh, congratulations, Seattle, and your fans. Yeah. So we shared that one. We're going to share the Olympics, too, which is kind of next man up, so to speak, in the sports world. And when I think of the Olympics that are coming up, I have three thoughts that are going through my head. One, why are they in Sochi, Russia? Every time even I look, all this, it's, yeah. like, it's like 60 degrees there. Like, it's not even cold there. So that's my first question. My second, the second thing I think about is the hockey. Sure. And I hope the hockey is great. And the third is, is I hope something just horrendous doesn't happen. Right. Yeah, that's right. Like, I, I hope the first, I point. hope yeah. that this doesn't stay. I hope this stays a sporting event. I hope. You know, it's not like a repeat of the 1989 World Series where Al Michael Stoddy was calling a baseball game and ended up calling an earthquake. Right. You know, I hope there's not some poor guy standing in an Olympic arena somewhere getting ready to call figure skating, and next thing you know, he's calling a hostage scenario or something. And just everything, it just feels bad. And you know what? There's a lot of people who are really good to us on this podcast that are out there covering this, and I just hope that they are safe. I hope everyone's safe. Yeah, I agree. I look forward to the Winter Olympics. Uh, for whatever reason, I enjoy them more than the Summer Olympics. Probably the hockey, obviously. But uh, 
For me, this Winter Olympics is all about Ryan Miller. It's about, uh, as a local perspective, is is he going to be on my team still to start the Olympics? And then after it's over, is he going to be on my team? And does it sway his decision in one way or another? I don't see why it would necessarily. But uh, God forbid he gets hurt. That would be the worst-case scenario for Sabres fans. So, uh, Or maybe the best if you really want to keep him. Yeah, I yeah I guess you got that time to work not, on them. You're not trading them, right? Right. Uh, yeah, I guess. And I don't know who's gonna lay a huge amount of money on a guy who got injured in the Olympics and never came back after. Right. So maybe, but I don't want Ryan Miller to get hurt. No, I'd love regardless. to see him be an Olympic yeah. hero, and uh, I guess if he's gonna be the hero, he might as well be on my hockey team at least for that duration. I thought the Sabers have been really good about the way they've used him the last month. Yeah. There's no way that if he wasn't going to the Olympics, Jonas Enroth would have played as many games as he had in this last month. And I think that's big of the Sabres. Yeah, we're getting a little local here too, but uh, Enroth was playing phenomenally, and then he made some comment. And it wasn't even a bad comment. It was totally true, but it was something like how he was just getting a little fed up that the team was uh, gave him no run support. There was some Yankee pitcher, I think, that had a similar thing. Like he had great stat line one year, but terrible run support. And that was Jonas Enroth, the Sabres' backup goalie, for the longest time. And now he's given up a lot of bad goals, I, I think, since he's made that comment. So I don't know if he's feeling the pressure of saying something like that. But, uh, yeah, the team has not been good in front of him. So let's forget the hockey for a second. Well, first, who do you think is going to win the hockey? Are you just going to go Canada, go chalk? Or do you think that one of the – Sweden maybe can get yeah, it? Yeah, you uh, know what? U.S., if Russia, you get a home? hot goalie – Sweden's good because, I mean, you got Lundqvist there. All the contenders except for Russia have really good goalies, right? Or are you going to count Who's Who is Canada sending? Russia's. Isn't that kind of their weakness? Well, Canada is clearly the weaker of the of all the teams. Right, and that's always the big question mark, I think, for me with Canada. is, And it's weird. Like, who are they not sending that's having a phenomenal year? Like, Marc-Andre Fleury or somebody isn't going, and I thought he was playing really well this season. Uh yeah, I don't know. A hot goalie, I guess. I, Sweden's probably a good bet. They're one of the favorites anyway. And then throw in Lundqvist if he plays well. So I'd love to see U.S., but they, they remind me of the team that's going to have to, like, grit it out. Other, I mean, they got Kane, though. Kane's arguably the best offensive player in the sport, like, just from a pure goal-scoring perspective. So it'll be I, fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun to watch. What time are they going to be on, you know, like here? They go from, like, 3 a.m. till noon. Ugh. You know, hopefully, so, uh, DVR. is it NBC? Yeah. Hopefully they ruin it again by showing promos for the, all of the games will be aired live and then, you know, potentially re aired in a normal time. Right. But when so they were if, doing that with the la- with the summer Olympics, they were showing like the girl swimmer accepting her gold medal. <laughs> and then like up next, does she win the, uh, uh, yeah, they blew that one. Right. So, I don't know. I'm looking forward to the hockey, and, you know, I'll tune in every night and see what's going on. Check out some skiing. Check out some this. Check out some that. I mean, yeah. other than the hockey, I don't I don't get into the figure skating that much. I don't necessarily get into any one sport all that much, but I watch a lot of it. Yeah. You know what? Curling always becomes Curling is really cool, yeah. like Olympic time. But uh, you mentioned in in uh, anything else in the Olympics? No, I'm excited for him. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned Patrick Kane, and my third thing is just really briefly Patrick Kane, who is known as someone who loves his grandfather very much, lost his grandfather yesterday, 
and in his memory did score a couple goals and had an assist, and after one of the goals gave the old kiss and point to the sky. Uh, Patrick Kane is someone who grew up not too far from where we do this podcast, Uh, certainly someone we root for quite a bit, someone that has spent quite a bit of time on the ice with my brother, uh, playing on some pickup teams over the summer and things like that. And uh, we wish Patrick Kane and his family the best. And hopefully he can go over to uh, Sochi and uh, win a gold medal, bring it back to his grandpa. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, you, you you said he grew up. And uh, I actually kind of rooted against Patrick Kane when he first came out. He was a Buffalo kid. You wanted to root for him. But everything he did kind of made him look like a spoiled brat. Like Started he, a bit immature. Like he wasn't a Buffalo kid. Like, that's not how we are type thing. But, uh, He's grown up. Man, he is one of my favorite players now. And the more I... Th- I think about the way he was, the more I think he was, I mean, we've talked about this. He was just a kid, yep. you know, so he's grown up speaking of kind of similar people, kids being kids or boys being boys type thing. Uh, I got to eat a lot of crow and I think a lot of people do. And this is getting really interesting. I'm not sure you've read it, but the big has the transcripts of the text messages between Richie incognito and Jonathan Martin. And I am very anti-bullying uh, for personal reasons, but uh, there is no bullying going on in those text messages. Those are two guys that are friends. Uh, when Jonathan Martin first leads the team, if you read these transcripts, he uh, Richie reaches out to him, says, I know this is a tough sport type thing. Uh, I've been in bad places too. If there's anything I can do, let me know. Like, If anything, Richie Incognito comes off as a dumb jock. But no more than Jonathan Martin. They're all about getting laid, getting lit up and boozed up, and uh, playing football, getting swole. Like that's. But these text messages back and forth are between two friends. Like clearly. it never quite felt right. And the only threat on a family member was done like in a picture of like a meme. Like it was a total joke, and the media ran with it. So. I feel bad because I'm sure on the podcast I blasted Richie Incognito. Uh, we always kind of t- we always kind of took a not so sure approach though because this just never totally felt right. Whoever ran with this story was super irresponsible. Uh, terrible, terrible job by the media. This is this although looks- it didn't help that the guy ran away from the team. No, in slight defense of the media. Right, and that, even at the end, there, where there's fire, kind of a the thing. End, when if the you haven't read it, away. if you haven't read it, go read it. There's like 48 pages of text, but I mean, it reads quick because they're text. But uh, the last thing Richie Incognito says is something along the lines of, "Where are you, bud? I really need you right now. The media is killing me." Like Richie Incognito comes out as a really sympathetic figure after you read these texts. So there is something in the, "Hey, what are you doing tonight? What are you doing tonight? Going out here? How are the girls there?" That all of a sudden switches to. No text messages for a while. Uh, Martin's gone because Richie's like, hey, where are you? How you doing? I hope that everything's going well. To I'm getting blasted. I, I need your help here. Like, it seems like after reading this, Richie Incognito was totally blindsided. And I feel bad because, like I said, I know I would have blasted him if I actually thought the he was full of... It's easy to assume that there's this football culture and, like, the bigger, badder guy wins because that's what the game is kind of all about and... Boy, after reading these text messages, there is nothing like that going on. Unless there is something totally different going on outside of the game. But Jonathan Martin uh, initiated a lot of these texts. Like, just the how you doing texts. So, 
something seems wrong with it. Uh, I heard one of Jonathan Martin's parents is some is a lawyer. They're or Harvard like grads. That. Yeah, his I, parents are Harvard grads. So I don't know if they pushed him to do this. I don't know if Martin wasn't was struggling on the team. I, it's re, it's a really a head scratcher now. And what sucks about it a little bit is I found one article mention of this kind of, and I haven't seen anything on TV yet, but. This was everywhere when it was the opposite way. So the people were real quick to bash Richie Incognito and wreck his career potentially. Because that's one of the last things he said is like, I really need your help. They're talking about releasing me type stuff. And now you haven't heard much about it. Hopefully that changes soon. All right. We are going to take a break and come back with Jonah Carey. Our next guest is from Montreal, Canada, and writes about baseball for Grantland. He is the author of The Extra 2% and is also the author of a book we've been talking about with him for many years on the Montreal Expos, which we're going to get into today. He's making his seventh appearance very kindly on the podcast, a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Jonah Carey. How are you doing today, Jonah? I'm good. How are you? Doing really good. Really excited to have you on. I Don and I were talking about this a few minutes ago. Uh, we were saying, you know, crazy all the time, seven times. It seems like almost all seven of them we've known about this project. And uh, the next time that you're on, it's gonna, we'll be talking exclusively about it. You know what I mean? Like it's here. And I, I just wonder as as the guy who put all the actual work in, uh, does it feel a little crazy that all this is like happening and is here and you know it's it's a real it's there's like an Amazon page and all that? Yeah, I mean it's you know it's a relief. It's just writing a book is. I mean, fuck coal mining, whatever. You know, it's, it's a fun job and everything. It just takes a lot of man hours and uh, a lot of neglecting your family or friends or dog or whatever the case may be in, uh, in a given writer's case. But uh, yeah, just to be done with that part is great. The interviews were fantastic. It was really a lot of fun to talk to. You know, Rusty Staub and. Tim Raines and Pedro Martinez and all these guys, um, and certainly the you know there there were elements of the writing that were a lot of fun too. Obviously, I, I enjoy what I do, but when you got down to it, and it was really getting towards the deadline. The last you know few months, three four months, I really didn't leave my house and didn't even see my kids, even though they're in the same house as I am, and certainly didn't go anywhere or do anything fun or whatever. So yeah, it, it was good to get that done. I mean, uh, just finishing it the other day, I, I was able to sit down and. Uh, wrap up a book that I've been meaning to read. It was a nonfiction book, just sitting in a comfortable chair in the house. I mean, even little things like that, honestly, are thrilling to me. Just to live a normal life now where I have some balance is, is great. It really, really was uh, all-consuming for a while there. Well, for the for the past couple of months, well, we had Christmas break. We took off for a couple of weeks for Christmas break, and then that got a little long because there was like a blizzard here. I don't know what the weather is like where you are, but it's been as bad of a winter here as there's been in probably 20 years. Uh, so that cost a week. And then, so it, oh, it's gotten away from us a bit, but we've really wanted to talk about a couple of specific baseball things. And that's why I reached out this week. Cause I figured next, like I said, next time I reach out, it's going to be to talk about the book. But, um, I want to ask you first about the hall of fame. And I know maybe some people 
who are outside of the context of this show who maybe don't listen weekly might be rolling their eyes and say like people are still really talking about that but uh mm-hmm. people who listen to the show regularly have been have been curious as to what someone might say about this knowing what a huge Greg Maddox fan I am and I just wonder how insulted do you think I should be because I'm going to tell you that it's very very high how insulted you should be by by the fact that there's 14 people I think it's 14 maybe 16 who in my opinion if you're not voting for Greg Maddox you're making it about yourself and I know I'm nothing but a kid who grew up being a huge Greg Maddox fan, but it's just so insulting that in that moment, which I feel like should be the best for him, instead of like answering questions about congratulations on being a first ballot Hall of Famer, every first question was, what do you think about the 14 idiots who didn't put you on their ballot? Do you really think Greg Maddox cares about that, though? Do you think that it's, he's troubled by it? Do you think that when he goes onto the podium that he's going to have to address that issue? I don't, so it doesn't really matter if it's unanimous or not. I think it's honestly too much is put on that. I think the bigger issue is guys who might have deserving cases who are not in the Hall of Fame. You know, let's say you're a video fan, he fell short by literally two votes. He'll probably get in next year, I would imagine. But it's a year that you have to wait, and, you know, it's it's, it's unfortunate he probably deserves it. So I, I don't know. I, I really, I know what you're saying. You're a big Maddox fan, whatever, and Maddox is, if not the best pitcher of all time, top three or four. But, I mean, honestly, they're never going to vote anybody all unanimously. So you just kind of have to accept that and move on. I mean, Joe DiMaggio wasn't, so Greg Maddox won't be. That's the whole argument. It's really stupid, and that's just how it is. And I think it's more of a, a process issue, right? I mean, it's more about we have this system in place. And I don't know, do you disagree with me that the people who are keeping them off are making the vote about themselves? Not necessarily. That's it feels I, to me. Well, there there are a few factors. I mean, it's possible that, that that could be the case, that they could just say, well, listen, I don't believe X, so I'm not going to vote Y. In the case of Maddox, though, and it's hard because I haven't scrutinized every single ballot, but it's possible that you could make an argument for not voting for Maddox because there were so many good candidates, and I'll explain why. You could only vote for 10 people at any one time. Right. I would argue that there were 15 deserving candidates, and some people could make the case for 18 or 19 or 20. So let's say you know Greg Maddox is getting in, which he obviously is. And let's say you're a big, I don't know, Edgar Martinez supporter. And Edgar Martinez is like the 11th or 12th best guy or whatever on the ballot. You could skip Maddox and vote for Edgar, figuring that your Edgar vote matters much more than the Maddox vote matters. I don't know if this is what happened, but that is certainly a reasonable argument, basically a game theory argument for why you would not vote for Maddox. Is, is that in the case? Now, that, of course, opens up. Uh, other discussions about how the process is incredibly flawed, this whole idea of you can only vote for 10 guys, and because people have been so stingy with their votes, 10 is now not enough spots on the ballot. But the good news there is that there is a committee that's been formed uh, within the BBWA, and the hope is that that might change. You know, that there's a possibility that we might see more room on the ballot or maybe just unlimited room. We'll see what happens, and that's going to be discussed. But that could end up changing, and that, that would address uh, one of the biggest problems, I think. Not that everybody has this problem, but there are a lot of earnest People who give it a lot of study who come to the conclusion, whether it's by statistics or just by observation, that there are 10, 11, 12, 13, maybe 20 deserving candidates, and that is an issue right now. There's a backlog. Do you think there should be transparency in the voting? Uh, you know, at first I wasn't that hardcore about it, um, but the more I thought about it, the more I think, yes, I'm not over the top uh, about transparency, though. I know uh, my colleague Keith Lottie at SPN and some other people really feel strongly about it. They feel like with more accountability, if people put their ballot out there and subject themselves to scrutiny, then, you know, they're liable to make whatever more, I guess, mainstream votes, that they won't only vote for 
Don Mattingly and some other guy. You know, they'll, they'll give it more thought, whatever. But I don't know. I honestly think that there are some voters that whether or not you scrutinize them, they're just going to vote in a, in a way that would be considered weird by a lot of people for various reasons. might be because they haven't covered the game in 20 years. It might be because they don't believe in stats at all. Who knows the reason? There could be all kinds of reasons. So, you know, I guess on the margins, I'd say it's probably a good thing. You know, just more transparency, same as like with MVP and Cy Young and all that that we have now. But, yeah, I don't know that it would change that much. I think that you'd sort of be stuck in the same situation, really. We have uh, two main guys that come on our show to talk baseball with us the most. You're one of them, and Jeff Passan is the other one. Yep. And we kind of look at you as kind of the advanced stats guy. And we kind and Jeff is kind of an advanced stats guy, not to your level, but we kind of look at him as the opposite side of that argument. Sometimes if there needs to be an opposite side, there doesn't necessarily need to be all the time or ever, maybe. Right. But uh, the, 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 my point was that as an advanced stats guy, which is kind of what I was getting at, you're our advanced stats guy, how do you feel like things have been going in terms of players getting in the Hall of Fame and not getting in the Hall of Fame and this being an issue on the ballots as we move forward and forward and forward? Uh, you're asking if I think from an advanced stats standpoint that there are candidates being neglected? Is that what you're saying? No, what I'm saying is the voters considering it and, and advanced stats being a part of the equation and, and how it is reflecting people who are getting in and not getting in, are you satisfied with the progress that was being made? I'm sure 10, uh, years, I'm sure 10 years ago if we had this discussion, you'd be saying, does anyone know anything about advanced stats? Because it doesn't reflect in Hall of Fame voting, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I don't think you have to have much knowledge of advanced stats to get it right, to be honest with you. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, my favorite player of all time is Tim Raines. So I'll just use the Tim Raines example. If you can literally understand that a walk is as good as an infield hit, then Tim Raines is the same player as Tony Gwynn. I mean, honestly, I don't even need to go beyond that. Raines got on base a few more times in his career than Gwynn did, but Gwynn's at the Hall of Fame's first ballot it was 97% of the vote because he won a bunch of padding titles because he had 3,000 hits. And Rays is not because he had 2,605 hits and he walked 1,330 times. Forget about stolen bases or defense or what teams they played for or playoffs or anything else. Just consider the hits and walks. Are walks an advanced stat? Not really. It's not that hard to understand that. I don't think you need to be a genius. And, and really, when I make my arguments, when I write about the Hall of Fame, I don't really use wins above replacement. I don't really use win probability added. I just say, hey, listen, you know, this guy played for this long and Here's what he did, and here's what he batted, and you know, here's the league average that year, or here's how he pitched, and that's it. You know, I, I really don't think that it requires that much digging, to be honest. If you all look at, you know, say Jaffe has his jaw system and stuff like that, I'll look at it, but I don't really introduce it into my analysis, uh, at least the way that I'm, I'm writing about it, and I think you can get away with not looking at it at all, to be honest with you. I just think that you have to consider, you could look at the raw stats and then just consider context. What was the average hitter doing? in 1997. You know, if the average hitter, if the average first baseman was hitting 35 homers a year, and you're arguing for, I don't know, Fred McGriff or something like that, well, Fred McGriff, you know, by his, by the standards of his day, even though he hit 490 out home runs, is not that great a player because a zillion first basemen hit a lot of home runs in the 90s. So you consider that, and you say, you know what, Fred McGriff was a great player, probably not a Hall of Famer. That's how you do it. It's really not that difficult. Or the Jack Morris argument. Jack Morris won the most games in the 90s. Or in the 80s, rather. Okay, well, Mark Grace had the most hits in the 90s. Is Mark Grace a Hall of Famer? No. Is Jack Morris a Hall of Famer? No. You know, just because you have an arbitrary endpoint of a stat doesn't mean that the guy should be in the Hall of Fame. That's not advanced. There's nothing complicated about that. You just have to have be a logical person. I think that, that is the bottom line. I think that there are a lot of people who, you know, in terms of this stuff, tend to think about it illogically. 
I think there's a lot of sports fans out there who will put their head down in the football playoffs and college football and things like that at this time of the year. And now that that's ending and we look up and pitchers and catchers are reporting, uh, what are the kinds of things that these people need to catch up? I don't want you to recap the whole uh, off season. That's a stupid question. But um, more pressingly, like, what do we need to get into right away here? What pitchers and catchers are coming and what are going to be the big stories right off the top? Um, you know, I think that a lot of the teams that were good last year will probably be good this year, but I do see some bounce backs happening. One thing to keep in mind, you can say that for every sport, even if you're a football fan for that matter, is that just because something happened last year doesn't mean that it's going to happen next year. Uh, and there can be, for football actually, it happens even more often because you've got imbalanced or whatever. So you play a last play schedule, you can go from 4 and 12 to 10 and 6. Baseball doesn't have that, but what baseball does have is variance. You know, a guy can hit 231 year, but he's really 280 hitter. Comes back and hits 280 next year. So do three of his teammates, and all of a sudden, you know, he won 75 games last year. You might win 87 this year and get then for a playoff spot. And I see a few teams like that. I think the Giants will be much better. I think the Angels will be much better. You know, on the lower end, I don't know how much of a difference these teams are going to make in the playoffs, but I bet the Cubs and the Brewers and the Jays probably aren't as bad as they were last year. And then if you turn it around, you could say the same thing about teams, you know, on the upside. That, you know, maybe a team like, uh, I don't know, for instance, Texas. You know, Texas was able to get to the, uh, tiebreaker game. It'll be interesting to see what happened. They remade the roster. They did get uh, you know, Fielder and Shoe and so forth, but uh, you know, it's not going to be easy to get back into the uh, into a position to make a playoffs. We'll have to see how that goes. You know, if, if in the National League, it's possible that a team like the Pirates, who had a miracle season, really. It was incredible what they did after being below 500 for so many years. Well, they might lose A.J. Burnett, and you know, they had some luck last year. Francisco Liriano was out of his mind. I don't know if I'd pick the Pirates to make the playoffs this year. So, I just think that it's just recognizing that, that things change and that you need to be aware of it. So if you're a fan of whatever team, you know, you have to evaluate your team realistically and say, okay, well, what's that and how good can they be and whatever. That You might have won 85 games last year and you signed so-and-so. That means you're going to be even better. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it goes the other way. The Yankees had this $180 million or $189 million number that they kept trying to sell people, and they totally blew that out of the water signing – a Japanese pitcher. If you don't know anything about said Japanese pitcher, what can you tell us about him and how excited should Yankee fans be about him? He has a great splitter, which is kind of a lost art in baseball. It was a big thing in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, like Kurt Schilling were really good with his foot finger fastball. Um, it's a bigger deal in Japan. You tend to see more pitchers throwing at uh, Kuroda for the Yankees than a Japanese pitcher. He throws the splitter a lot. And Tanaka really has an explosive one. So even though he only throws maybe 93 for his fastball, roughly, 92-93, He'll set you up, get two strikes on you, and strike you out with that splitter. And I think just aesthetically, forgetting about stats, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. You'll see him get ahead of hitters, and he'll just bury that pitch in the dirt, and people are going to hack at it all season long. And I think he'll rack up some strikeouts and ground balls that way. And, and that bodes well. Obviously, in that ballpark, you know, Yankee Stadium, a right-handed pitcher, you've got that short porch in right field. You know, you have to be cognizant of the fact that lefties could take your yard on you know, pop-ups, on glorified uh, line drives that could go right out of the park. And so for a guy to really keep the ball down and get strikeouts and ground balls, that's all to the good. And I think that'll benefit Tanaka. The only concern that I would have with him, or that anybody has with him really, is just the number of innings that he's racked up by age 25, the number of innings and pitches that is. It's a ton. I mean, in Japan, the best pitchers, going back to high school, tend to throw a ton of pitches. So he's got a lot of miles on his arm, uh, you know, considering how young he is. And then the other factor is in Japan, you throw you know, roughly once a week, once every six days, whatever, here you're five-man rotation, so it's sort of a different story. 
It's uh, kind of salary arbitration time. I think it goes till the 21st. Is, is there any particular ones that are going to get ugly or cause really hard feelings between the players or the teams? Or is anything going to be a really big story out of the salary arbitration hearings that are going to be going on in the next few weeks? I don't know about hard feelings. I think the most interesting case will be Craig Kimball because here you've got a guy who's fantastic. I mean, he's a great, great pitcher, no doubt about it. You know, strikeouts galore, does not allow runs, does not allow hits. He's about as automatic as you can get. He's kind of a new Rivera. You know, but by the same token, he's a closer. And so this comes down to a debate that might be hashed out in the arbitration room, which is, you know, the player will come in and say, hey, listen, man, I'm the new Mariano Rivera, and you give me a lot of money. And the Braves will say, you're fantastic. We can't possibly ask for more, but you just throw the ninth inning. You give us 60 innings a year, whereas whoever, Mike Miner, gives us 200. Mike Miner is a more valuable pitcher than you are, even though his ERA is much higher and his strikeouts aren't as good and so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's an interesting sort of uh, situation, and uh, he's the last guy left that the Braves have arbitration eligible now. They just signed Freddie Freeman to a $125 million contract. So, uh, yeah, I imagine that one will get some attention. Yeah, and the Braves will go into the arbitration room and say, hey, you know, you're so valuable to us that in the most important spot of the season, we left you standing in the bullpen with your hands on your hips There's and the ball too. in your glove. Well, that's an argument for firing their manager, which is probably a discussion that they should have some other time. Uh, oh, God, I still, I still, uh, still can't believe that that happened. But um, uh, last thing I wanted to ask you, well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, we just wanted to mention, was the book Up, Up, and Away, The Kid, The Hawk, Rock, Vladdy, Pedro, Legrand, Orange, Yopiel. Did I say that right? I can't really say Yopi. Yopi. I'm sorry. I couldn't, the Amazon print is really small. The Crazy Business of Baseball and the Ill-Fated but Unforgivable Montreal Expo's hardcover book. It comes out in March, and we kind of talked a little bit about it being the Book Club Book of the Month, which uh, the extra 2% was way back when, when we first started the Book Club Book of the Month. And um, we've been having a lot of success with that, and I'm sure me and you will talk about that off the air. But we're really excited about the book. Uh, I know I've asked you so many times about it, and I can't wait to get a chance to read it. And uh, I'm sure you're relieved to have it uh, almost out in everyone's hands. And uh, thank you, as always, for doing this. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you to Jonah Carey for being on the podcast. Really looking forward to his book on the Montreal Expos. It's uh, very similar to if I someday were to be able to write the definitive book on the New Orleans Saints. So congratulations to Jonah for being able to uh, create a project like that. And we can't wait to check it out, see what it's like, and uh, yeah, that feels as our book club book of the month. We've had him on almost since the beginning, and I feel like he's been talking about that since the beginning. So yep. it's cool to see that kind of come full circle. All right, greatest of all time. Kick us off, bud. All right, mine is going to be very uh, – we're getting personal here. Uh, my f- The greatest nerdy hobby of all time, so think like model trains, Dungeons & Dragons type of stuff like that. I'm going to say Magic the Gathering. I found myself at a comic book store Friday night actually buying Magic the Gathering cards. I've been playing since 1995, off and on, more off than on, but uh, i got a few friends that will still get together and play once in a while. And this freaking card store had this is Friday Night Magic was going on, which is a thing that goes on at places that sell them. And there was over forty people there. Like they had so many people that some people were playing in the pizza place next door. So it's super popular. It's where uh, is this place? 
this was a comic book store on Delaware. Hmm. Uh, but it goes on everywhere. There's, I know there's at least one other place in the area that holds Friday Night Magic, and they're pretty popular. Uh, it's nerdy, but it's also kind of like, I know not nerdy people that play it. Uh, Crossover. Yeah, it's kind of like you get... It's At the Friday of, Night Magic, you're definitely going to get some people that, like, straight out of the Big Bang Theory, like the stereotypical nerdy people. But, hey, I mean, they're doing something totally social. They're getting together with 40 friends on a Friday night, so you can't beat that. So, yeah, I'm going to say Magic the Gathering is the greatest nerdy hobby of all time. The Seahawks, the big talking Seahawks, uh, I'm not exactly sure who it was, maybe Chancellor, after the game mentioned that they had just proved that they were the greatest Super Bowl winning defense of all time. And I uh, disagree. I am going to stick with the 1985 Chicago Bears as the greatest Super Bowl winning defense of all time. They had two shutouts in the uh, first two rounds of the playoffs and gave up one touchdown in the Super Bowl. Not to mention everything they did during the regular season. They've been the gold standard of defense for a long, long time. I know they didn't necessarily have to go through Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. I think it was Tony Eason who was the quarterback for the uh, Patriots, I could be wrong. But I'm going to say that it, it wouldn't have mattered if it was Johnny Unitas. Uh, the Chicago Bears in 1985, uh, we just read a book about them, actually, a book called Book of the Month uh, that was written by uh, Richard Cohen. I just read all about this team and about how great they were, and I'm going to stick with them as the greatest Super Bowl winning defense of all time. Sorry, Seahawks. My next one goes kind of to the Super Bowl too. We had a Super Bowl party. Uh, thought we were going to order food, but ended up everyone brought enough food. We never ended up ordering anything. So I missed out on my greatest bar slash, I don't know, pizza joint food of all time, and that's chicken wings. And I don't think it's all that close. And if you really want to get real specific, their Duff's chicken wings are the greatest bar food of all time. Probably considering we're on a slight time crunch tonight, Getting me started on chicken wings, specifically Duff chicken wings, probably <laughs> is not a good idea. But you would not get much of a uh, of an argument. I think I could eat chicken wings every day. Yes, I did yesterday, and I would easily you, do it again today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, uh, the Olympics are coming up, and one of our friends, Jeff Perlman, wrote an article for Bleacher Report, which drives me nuts that he writes for Bleacher Report because I can't stand reading anything on there because you just have to click from page to page to page, and there's just no flow oh, of reading on yeah. there. It drives me nuts. But he wrote a article about the 1984 U.S. Olympic team. Okay. The one that was after the Miracle on Ice. Right. And he talked a little bit in that about Pat LaFontaine, who was on that team, and about how he's maybe a top five greatest American hockey player of all time. And I think that at one point in this, you did the greatest American goalie of all time. And you declared Ryan Miller. I think I said when he retired, he right, would be. Right. Yep. So this is different. I'm going to say that the greatest American hockey player of all time is Brian Leach. Now, I had this discussion with somebody not on the podcast, but do you think it's Pat Kane when he retires? Pat Kane is flying by everybody. I mean, he's, like he's probably rolling, better than LaFontaine He's right now. rolling through the list very quickly. But at this point... Uh, and, and you know what? A lot of the things that I would point to with Brian Leach, Pat Kane's already accomplished, i.e. a Stanley Cup, a Conn Smythe Trophy. You know, those things are things right. that Pat Kane has accomplished. So, yes, I do think that maybe even three years from now when we're doing this, right. I'm yeah, I mean, the only thing going to say uh, Patrick Kane. But still, as of right now, the greatest American hockey player of all time is Brian Leach, in my opinion. Yeah, the only thing I think Kane is going against him is just the amount of time he's played. 
Um, my last one's kind of a cop out. Uh, greatest winter Olympic sport of all time is hockey. Uh, it doesn't. It didn't seem to work when they did the North America versus the world, whatever they called it, all star game. But these players care about the Olympics. There's a lot of passion on the line. There's a lot of pride. It's cool to see teammates that just minutes ago would punch another guy from another team in the face if they had to, giving each other the stick a little bit. And uh, I believe a lot of people, one of the arguments against letting pros in there was maybe the passion would be gone that the amateur amateur players had, but I don't think it loses any of that. The Olympics have uh, hockey has been fantastic, and from a local standpoint. We saw two of the best goaltending performances maybe ever in the Olympics were from goalies right here in Buffalo and Dominic Hasek, which is probably the greatest goaltending performance as a whole ever uh, that Olympic run he had, and then a few years back with Ryan Miller. So Olympic hockey or winter hockey is the greatest winter Olympic sport. One big thing that everyone loves about Super Bowl Sunday is the commercials, and one of the commercials this year that stood out as potentially maybe the one of the better ones was the Radio Shack commercial, where yeah, the 80s. they got a phone call from the 80s, and they wanted their store back, and it got me thinking about the 80s, which is something that people who listen to this show know that I love very much, and I thought to myself, as a challenge for this week's greatest of all time, I should say, what is the greatest thing from the 80s? Because many of my greatest things of all time stem from the 80s. Probably my greatest movie of all time would be The Karate Kid. WrestleMania. WrestleMania 3 would be on there. Um, The A-Team is my favorite TV show of all time. Ellie with an Eye is my favorite girl to masturbate to of all time. (laughs) Just several, several (laughs) things from the 80s would uh, make my greatest of all time list. And I'm going to settle on WrestleMania 3 as the greatest moments in the 1980s good yeah i would guess that from your list i don't know what mine would be i'm not prepared to answer something that broad yeah so very broad and and it's one that i've done uh subsections before and i'm sure we'll do subsections again yep uh but for me when it comes to the 80s the greatest moment was the three and a half hours in uh march of 1987 when uh vince mcmahon and uh, his team of brilliant bookers and wrestlers and promoters put together uh, the WrestleMania three event. So, greatest Super Bowl defense of all time is the 1985 Chicago Bears. Greatest American hockey player of all time is Brian Leach. And the greatest thing in the 80s was WrestleMania three. The greatest nerdy, decidedly nerdy, nerdy hobby of all time is Magic the Gathering. The greatest bar food, fry food, whatever you want to call it, are chicken wings and Duff's chicken wings specifically. And the greatest winter Olympic sport is, I should say men's hockey, because the women's just isn't competitive. So It's only Canada or U.S. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the two. So men's ice hockey. All right. We will be uh, right back with Luke Wynn. Our next guest was born and raised in the state of Wisconsin and is a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Today he lives in Brooklyn where he is a full-time college basketball writer for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. And his power rankings column for the website is the most unique power rankings column on the internet. 
Uh, he's always been very kind to us and is making a seventh appearance on the podcast today. A Warren Sportscasters welcome to Luke Wynn. What's up, Luke? Uh, nothing much. Thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, and it, this is kind of like an annual one. We do this one every year. It's like, all right, football's over. It's February. It's time to really get serious about college basketball for the more casual. I've been serious about it for a fan. while. And right, that's why we call you because we know you've been serious all this time along. But uh, I want to start with um, with uh, what a game on Saturday, Syracuse and Duke. Huh? I mean, what a night for Central New York and for Syracuse and for college basketball. That was just everything about it was just amazing. I thought. I know it was really. You would, I don't know, I thought. I remember reading about stuff in the lead-up to the game, you know, people making a big deal about it being the biggest crowd ever there, and, you know, this meeting between Beheim and Krzyzewski and so often that those things end up being just let down, you know, not, not huge letdowns, but they often, the hype, the, the hype preceding it often exceeds the game itself, and just in this case, it, it wasn't at all. It was just the, it was, it was the best, Game of the year, uh, an incredible game, really. Um, you know, as much as Duke has been maligned a little bit, you know, that's still the best offense in the country to watch. So you've got to see the best offense in the country going up against probably the best team in the country, you know, which is, and, you know, possible number one draft pick, uh, going to overtime. It's just a brilliant game. And, and to be honest, like, you know, you get that game, and then last night that Iowa State Oklahoma State game. Was, oh, they go triple. Overtime? I thought uh, triple overtime. I thought it was just as good. I mean, maybe not quality of the game between Duke and Syracuse is probably a little better, but in terms of just entertainment, I was equally entertained even with that one. So it was, it's been a great. I mean, from Saturday, between Saturday and Monday. Well, only being a couple hours away from Syracuse, there's many, many Syracuse fans here, and they've been crying and complaining all year about not being number one, not being above Arizona, and you mentioned letdowns, and Arizona did lose a game, but probably not as big of a deal as losing Brandon Ashley. Kind of where does that leave Arizona, and what kind of team are they still going forward? Yeah, I just I just wrote something about that today that, that went up on SI.com about Losing Ashley, and because I'd, I'd been, I'd, I don't know if I cursed him, but I'd been working on an article on him before he got <laughs> before he got hurt. I was I remember watching the game, you know, the Cal game, and I had had, you know, I interviewed him and had something ready to run this week and to watch him go down, and I was, you know, I felt horrible because I thought he, for a team that had gotten very good, it seemed like he wasn't being talked about enough for the improvements he had made. Um, I, I thought that quietly he was there. He'd, be, he'd gone from being just kind of a nice role player as a freshman to uh, like their most versatile offensive weapon. I thought this year because he could, he added the pick and pop stuff to his game. He's the only guy on the team that can do that. Um, you know, Aaron Gordon defenses don't. He, he does a lot of. He, Aaron Gordon does a lot. You know, with hustle plays and cut and cuts, but. Defenses don't respect a shot. Whereas Brandon Ashley could knock down three. You know, could run the pick and pop game with T.J. McConnell, knock down threes. Uh, he could, you know, he could slash to the rim. He had moves in the post. He was the best big man in isolation. Like he was the big guy that they could move around everywhere on the floor and, and stretch defense a little bit. And to take him away makes them, to me, more predictable. Um, they 
McConnell's not a great scorer, but they can roll. It just it kind of makes their offense flatter to the point where I don't think they lose a ton of defense. I think they can still be a top five team defensively, but now I don't view them as an elite offensive team anymore. So you know you can still win a title that way, but the odds are you know the odds are more against you. You know we've seen. I feel like I made the comparison to them almost fitting the profile of like the 2010 Butler team that just you know they defended their way pretty much to the title game, but eventually, you know, the magic ran out. And so it's not like Arizona's, you take them out of the title race. I just, I'm, whereas I may have picked them to win the title, I probably wouldn't anymore, but I, but I, I think I'll still think about putting them in the final four. I, uh, going into the season, there was a lot of buzz about what was coming into college basketball this year, how great the freshmen that were coming in were going to be. How has that played out this year? Has there been a freshman that was off the radar that's kind of proved that he belonged in that group? Is there one that was in the group that maybe hasn't lived up to expectations? Uh, how do you view the freshman class that was so, so hyped as we went into this season? I think there's been, I think there's been, I think it's been the class as a whole is playing very well and is as important to the title picture and awards races as I think people expect it, and even more so because you've had, I think, most of the hype guys. You know, I think that uh, Jabari Parker has been excellent. Julius Randle, pretty good. Wiggins, okay, like he's not, he's not taking over the game, but he's pretty good, and he's, you know, and he's still, he's still possibly, uh, you know, one of the best scorers on a Final Four team. But then you've added in guys that we weren't talking about, like Tyler Ennis. You know, you're, you're you were just talking about Syracuse, right? I barely, I barely heard anybody talking about him much at all in the in the, in the lead up to the season, and he's the best, you know, pure point guard in the country right now, which is kind of a crazy thing to say as a freshman. I mean, he's he's incredible. He's sure-handed. He's clutch. And he he plays better in big games, even you know, rather than receding. And you've also added in Joel Embiid, who thought he was completely off the radar, but he was viewed as a little bit of an afterthought in that Kansas class and now probably going to be the number one pick. So it's gotten even deeper <laughs> as the season's gone on. It's kind of amazing for a class that had that much hype already. Are these two mid-majors that you got really high in your power rankings, are they are they this good? Are these mid-majors that can really be there in the end like we've seen in several previous NCAA tournaments, San Diego State and uh, Wichita State, I guess I'm talking about here? I think I'm... I would say I believe a little more in Wichita State and San Diego State just because Wichita State has guys, you know, with that Final Four experience, which I do believe, you know, I don't think that's an overrated thing. I really think that matters for the tournament. Um, and Wichita State is a little more balanced. Like, they have, you know, they're playing defense about as well as they did last year for the t- during that Final Four run, and I think they may, may even be better at scoring this time around just because Fred Van Vliet and, and Ron Baker are maybe even a more dynamic backcourt than what they had. So I think that's a team... I think Wichita State's one that, that I belongs, like, you know, in your discussion of elite teams this year. San Diego State, they're, they have some incredible wins. I mean, it's hard to go into Allen Fieldhouse and win. I mean, they won at Kansas. They've beaten Creighton. They've, you know, they've, they've. Uh, that's a strong team. I guess they, they don't have the history of maybe going deep in the tournament, and, and I think that they're a little offensively challenged, and maybe they're 
you know, them running the table in the Mountain West, like, this year, it's impressive, but it's not as strong of a conference. I don't know how much, how much stock I put into it just because the league is so far down. When I look at your, your power rankings, you do 16 teams, and when I think of the NCAA tournament, I feel like I'm looking at, you know, four brackets with four teams. If we looked at it that way, who are some schools that are outside of that, some schools that can end up with a fifth seed or a sixth or as low as a tenth, and, and we've seen this happen over and over again the last few years in the tournament. Are there some teams in that range you're looking at that can make serious runs in a one-and-done six-game tournament? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, a team that I don't have ranked, I mean, right now, UConn is, is still a team that I think has, they have flaws. Like, they don't, you know, they don't rebound very well defensively and you know they're but but they have the backcourt. They have that kind of tournament formula of experienced backcourt, you know, led by a clutch guy in Shabazz Napier who I you know, I think rises to the to the moment of the tournament. Um so that's one of them that I wouldn't you know, even if they don't win their league or they're not ranked, you know, they're not ranked in the top sixteen that I wouldn't count out, you know, but I just, I wouldn't want to write them off. And then further down, like, I mean, I think that, uh, like one mid major that I've, that I've been watching a decent amount of is green Bay. Uh, and that's way down. I mean, that's probably, that's probably, you know, maybe 11, 12 seeded team, but, uh, they're, they're likely to win the horizon league and they have a guard named Keeper Sykes. Who's you know, like a, a five eleven score. Uh, seems like a guy who could, you know, be one of those guys who becomes a big name on the first week of the tournament after they, you know, like win a 12-5 game or something. So that's that's another one that I'm kind of watching. I'm really excited about the Oklahoma team this year. It's been a while since I think that they've been this good, and I think they have a really nice freshman class. I think Lon Kruger is a great hire. We talked about that a couple of years ago, about what kind of hire he could be. I like Jordan Woodward a lot. He, he reminds me a little bit of Hollis Price, even wears number 10 like him. Have you got a chance to see the Sooners at all? And what do you think about what they've been able to do so far this year? Yeah, I mean, that's a... It's, I think it almost because the Big 12 has been so good, the the fact that the steps that Oklahoma has made have been uh, obscured a little bit, you know, and maybe not talk... I know they, they cracked the top 25, which is a big deal, but just because there's so much, there's so many like storylines in the Big 12, like Kansas freshman and Texas being unexpectedly good, and Iowa State, and that you know Oklahoma hasn't been talked about in much. But I agree with you. I mean, as a scoring team, they're pretty legit. They're exciting. To, like Ron Gruber is playing fast basketball. You know, exciting basketball. They're scoring. I don't. They're not like an incredible defensive team. I think, but they're you know they're like a sleeper team coming out of the Big 12 and. A big surprise, like a guy that nobody talked about, was uh, Ryan Spangler, who, you know, he was at Gonzaga, barely played there uh, as a freshman. Um, I don't know, I didn't know if I, I guess I didn't expect him to be this good. I mean, he is, I don't know if people have seen him, he's like a 6'8 forward who yep. is, you know, pretty rugged rebounder. He's one of the better, his permanent rebounding numbers are some of the best in the country. Like, he's a legitimate piece of a good team that, and, and he's an efficient scorer. Like, I mean, that guy's a, a really valuable piece of the team for a you know on a major conference team that I didn't see him coming. So he's from Oklahoma, and I them. I remember being really yeah. disappointed when he when he didn't ultimately sign. But I I don't remember if it was because it was right in the kind of uncertainty of who's the coach going to be or 
or I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but I remember thinking, "Oh man, I can't believe we we couldn't nail that guy down." You know, so it's good good to have yeah, him back. He obviously. seems like more of an Oklahoma player than yeah. a Gonzaga player. Right now. <laughs> I mean, he seems he's in his right place now. I guess. So, what about the next couple of weeks? What what do we uh, what do we focus on here as we get? Before the tournaments, the conference tournaments start and the real tournaments start, what are going to be the big things we got to watch? Are there big games? Is there a big day? Is what do we got to get focusing in here in the next couple of weeks of college basketball? I think that uh, well, for me personally, selfishly, I guess I had a, a story on um, DeAndre Kane in Iowa State and in Sports Illustrated this week that's coming out uh, tomorrow in a magazine, and I think that. You may see, you know, the big win Monday night for Iowa State. I know they're only they're only five and four in the Big Twelve, but I think that could be. I think they could go on like a seven or eight game winning streak uh, and really move it. You know, move to near the top of the league and maybe crack the top ten of the polls and just kind of be one of those hot teams heading into March. Um, so I think that was a good sign for them. I, I really could see them moving up. Um, in terms of bigger games, I guess uh, I'm, I'm excited to see. Was that on February 15th? Uh, you'll get the first uh, Florida, Florida, Kentucky, first of you know two, possibly three Florida, Kentucky games, and um, you know the SEC is so down that I feel like I haven't seen Florida get truly tested. Uh, you know, the way, I mean they've won at Arkansas, that was a big one, but I really want to see Florida against you know a team with a lot of NBA players. So I'm excited. I'm I'm really excited to see that one just because Florida's a team that, um, at full strength, I don't always feel like I have a, the perfect read on. You know, they've had they've had different personnel come. You know, they've had injuries. They now they added Chris Walker, so it's like I really want to see a full strength Florida. You know, against somebody good. That's I think that's a big just for assessing them as a possible title team. I just wanted to mention you mentioned Ohio or Iowa State. Oh, you split with them. Just wanted to mention that. And took them right, right down to it on Saturday too. Right down to it. Oh yeah, that's a legit. Yeah, I, I'm not saying they're. I'm not saying Oklahoma is an afterthought, but uh, but nice I conf- that's State, a nice conference. Schedule, year, huh? Nice conference. The schedule, yeah, the schedule <laughs> opens up for Iowa State. Like the, you know, in terms of the way the Big Twelve schedule was, was very difficult at the front. So I just feel like it opens up for them too. Yeah, it does not uh, open up very well for Oklahoma. It looks very difficult yeah, from this point forward. It's a tough league. Yeah, it's really a, tough. Yeah, they still have to go um, to Oklahoma State. Still have to go to Kansas. They got to play Texas again. So yeah, it's it's a tough league for sure. So, but yeah, yeah, exciting season for college basketball. I mean, with all the great players and and teams that teams that mean something to people who don't necessarily follow college basketball are really good teams this year. I think if you know what I'm saying by that. Yeah, there's a lot of I I have I there's a lot of really fun teams to watch because it's not. You know, it's not just like there's one dominant. You know, you have you have Syracuse, you know, undefeated major conference team, but fun to watch. But you've also, I just think there's lots of like Creighton, incredibly fun to watch them shoot like crazy. You know, shoot an insane amount of threes, and they're actually like an excellent offense. Duke, really fun offense to watch. They don't guard people that much. You know, makes for games that are high scoring and close. Um, you've got. I mean, you still got like Russ Smith playing. I mean, can't forget about Louisville. Like that, that's an entertaining team to watch. Michigan's entertaining. Michigan State at full strength, entertaining. Watching Kansas freshman, you never know what you're going to get. Whether you're going to get 
brilliant performances or, you know, total off nights. Kentucky, we still haven't seen them play their best basketball. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like there's at least 15 teams that I, like, enjoy watching this year. I don't know if that's always the case. I know the one other thing I wanted to ask you before I let you go. We're talking about all these te- these you know big college basketball name teams that are involved. What what has happened in North Carolina the last couple of years? That just haven't had I, North Carolina years. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's kind of a lack of of that. Well, at least on the current team, you know, there's a lack of that transcendent star. And TJ Harrison probably could have been that guy. I mean, he's He's scoring like forty points a night in the D League. I think he would have been he would have been a twenty point scorer in the ACC. I don't know if he would have fixed everything, but um, you know it's kind of like the guys that they're relying on to be stars now uh, are not the kind of guys that would carry. You know, it's not like I, it's not like James Michael McAdoo was like a Hansborough, you know, or something like that. It's just kind of you're relying on a, a mid level player to take on a huge role. It's kind of like dragging them down. Um, so it's like they're recruiting. They have solid debt. You know, they have. They, there's a lot of guys who are in that you know four star range that are decent players, but there's not that elite guy like the Jabari Parker or the you know Tyler Ennis or somebody that can really carry you. And it, you know, it seems like a problem. It it, it is a problem. Um, and I don't know how they. You know, the recruiting has not. It's not like clear that it's recovered to the point where it, it seems like schools, Kansas, Kentucky, um, you know, just other places are sort of poaching those top level guys. Well, I don't know who you read, uh, but if it's not Luke Wynn, it should be. He writes for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, and he's always great to us, comes on almost every time I ask him. And I always say that there isn't much better than the blog that he does during the NCAA tournament. Any chance you're scheduled for the Buffalo region, or you have no idea yet, right? I don't know yet. We have, we have, we we actually just started sending, or we've been sending emails about that this week. So there's a chance um, that I may stay on the East Coast. We we have not locked anything in yet, though. Well, so, come come to um, Buffalo, and I will buy you chicken wings, the best in the world. I will take you for the best chicken wings <laughs> in the world. All right. You well, that's a that's an incredible incentive. That may <laughs> that may swing. Thanks, Luke. Twenty four. I had a job for having me. All right. T- talk to you. All right, I want to thank Luke Wynn for coming back on the podcast. We missed talking to Luke, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from him a couple more times in the next couple of weeks as college basketball gets more and more serious and gets into March Madness. Luke's March Madness blog on SI.com is always one of my favorite things to follow all year long. All right, book club update. Book club's been down a bit over Christmas break and before, but things are about to pick up with the book club. First of all, let's talk about What's coming up for the month of March? The book club book of the month is going to be from our good friend Jeff Perlman, who has a book called Showtime, which is about the 1980s era Lakers. And it's one that we've been talking with Jeff the last few times that he's been on the show. And it's finally going to be released soon and is going to be the book club book of the month. And I know we are going to be doing a contest with Jeff and have a a copy of that book to give away. In March, the month after that, is another 
uh, book that we've been anxiously awaiting for and one that we talked a little bit about earlier, and that's Jonah Carey's book about the Montreal Expos. Uh, Both of those books, Jonah's book and Jeff's book, are available for pre-order on Amazon and most places where you buy books. So we got some huge, huge sportscasters, guests, putting out books that they've worked really, really hard and long about. And we're going to make sure that we use our book club as a way to promote them and do some promotions and hopefully give a couple copies away to some listeners. This month, February, which... As of just a couple days ago, I wasn't even sure we'd have a book club book of the month. We found out that our next guest has written a book as well, and it's sort of out, sort of not out. I'll explain it. It's called Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run, authored by our good friend Ed Sherman. That book is already available on Amazon and will be available in bookstores right around the middle of the month. So if you're looking for a gift for Valentine's Day, I'm sure your wife or girlfriend would really... Enjoy a book uh, about Babe Ruth's called shot or not called shot. So the book club book of the month for this month is Babe Ruth's called shot, the myth and mystery of baseball's greatest home run by Ed Sherman. And instead of me going on and on about it, let's take a break and come back and talk to Ed Sherman. Our next guest is from Chicago, Illinois, is in a graduate of the University of Illinois. He spent 27 years working for the Chicago Tribune. He has his own sports media website called The Sherman Report, and he is the author of a new book, which we are going to talk quite a bit about today. He's making his fourth appearance on the podcast today. A Warren Sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Ed Sherman. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. I think the last time I had you on, I called PK shot for him, and uh, he didn't let me down, I don't think. I think it was a walk-off hat-trick to win the Western Conference, actually, I think is exactly. Yes, he did. (laughs) Yep, we got uh, two Stanley Cups here in uh, four years, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe another one. I think it's going to be a challenge, um, but, uh, you know, they're playing pretty good hockey again, and... uh, We'll see how they, uh, you know, it's been really exciting here because to see the Blackhawks come back and, and really dominate the scene and in and, and every aspect in Chicago sports. Now you should see how exciting it is here with the Sabres this year. Whew. Man, they're just, <laughs> I mean, the excitement on the streets. We were at the game last night. I mean, there, there had to be at least 6,000 people with uh, seven yeah. minutes left in the game there still. So, I mean, it was just, it was buzzing. Buzzing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I want to ask you about a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about the book, and I want to ask you about the Olympics a little bit. But I want to start with the Super Bowl first. And like at some point in the middle of the third quarter or something, I think I turned to my dad and I said, boy, Fox is going to be pissed because this is just not going to do the number that the last bunch of Super Bowls has. And then it turned out it did a better number, right? How, I mean, how does this happen? Well, I mean, it sets the all-time record, at, you know, for for most viewers. I mean, I mean, basically, it seems like it doesn't really matter how close the game is. I mean, if it was closer, it probably would have been a few ticks higher. But, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, Bill Gates complaining about losing, uh, you know, a, a million, a billion dollars when he has $50 billion, you know. Uh, you know, it's uh, it seems like it was, if anything, the Super Bowl just showed that people will stay with the game and watch the game regardless of of the score. And it was about as bad a Super Bowl 
in recent years as anyone can remember, and, uh, and yet people stayed. Uh, they watched the halftime show. The halftime show actually had a larger audience than the average audience in the game, and uh, so it's just immune from uh, you know. It's just it really is just this unbelievable phenomenon uh, where it doesn't matter who's in the game or what kind of game it is. It's a it's a national holiday. It's the one you know. I mean, it's the one outside of like Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's the one thing that uh, Americans do together, uh, you know, once a year. I mean, it's just a remarkable event. And and uh, even a bad game by Peyton Manning and the Broncos couldn't stop it. Do silly things, well, things that sports fans sometimes perceive as silly, like commercials play a part in the audience hanging in there? You know, I think that's part of it. Sure, it's this whole, multi, this whole event about the whole day. I do think, at least I found that, you know, I think the people who got really hurt on and and uh, Sunday were the you know were the advertisers because I think when the game is kind of bad, I do think there's just a little bit of a at least an emotional checkout where I didn't feel as into seeing the commercials because I was kind of just watching this to watch. And um, but I think there are certain people still watching to see the commercials. I would have rather at some point just you know have. Fox show commercials and and had kind of have the game in like a second screen because you know the game was getting so had deteriorated so so quickly. Um, but yeah, I mean it's just it's not even. And people ask, well, why do they do these these pregame shows? The pregame show averaged, you know, this is a four hour show that averaged twenty three million viewers. When you think about twenty three million viewers, I mean, <laughs> baseball and 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 the NBA, you know, I mean, a lot of sports would, uh, hockey, they would kill to have 23 million viewers for a four-hour period. And this is for a pre-game show where the content is pretty, you know, not the greatest. And, um, what, again, it's a holiday. And part of it, too, I think that this is a big part that kind of gets understated, is that it's, G- it's February. And there's, you know, and we live, you live in the Northeast, I live in the Midwest. I mean, two-thirds of the country is basically homebound, you know, we're locked to the couch, we're kind of in hibernation, it's like, you know, the weather's so bad that you don't really want to move, and, you're, and you get to the point where you just become so numb that you can't, you don't even have energy to turn, you know, click the remote, and I think that that is a big part of kind of, of why football, and especially the Super Bowl, does so well during the postseason, because, you know, what else are we going to do? I mean, there's nothing else on, and it is usually pretty good, compelling, television even when it isn't we still watch anyway if we were to do this interview one year ago we would have had to have talked about what a horrible day phil sims had one of the worst i can ever remember and i don't mm-hmm. mean to pound on phil sims because that drum has been pounded on for a right. whole year now uh, i just bring it up because i wonder watching this year what you thought of uh buck and aikman who you know, I, I generally thought- tend to be fans of Compared to maybe some other people. Yeah, I mean, I like. I mean, I kind of gave them an incomplete. I don't think I don't see how you could really grade them when the game was so bad, I and mean, you know, and they were appropriate and kind of dumping on Denver. Um, they seemed to be picking up on on the right things. You know, the one thing that I kind of noted where I thought Troy Aikman went into kind of his fellow quarterback mode was when towards the end of the game when he kind of noted that stuff, yeah. that the Manning yeah. that this one that this game wouldn't affect his legacy and that he's still a top five quarterback and I, I just I'm just, I think he kind of felt you know how I think he kind of was went into quarterback mode there and wasn't that uh, as objective because I don't think there's any way you can say that 
that this game will be, you know, wouldn't affect his legacy. I mean, I think this game's going to really linger more so than any of those other losses. And uh, it was unfortunate, uh, you know, for Manning. So that was the one knock that I really had against those guys. But listen, I mean, it's hard to make a telecast interesting when the game is over, one, you know, basically after the first play of the game and then definitely after the, the opening kickoff of the second half. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, I thought that at some point I thought I was watching kind of a replay of the, you know, the football version of the 1919 White Sox. It just like Denver is like couldn't it be that bad, <laughs> you know, when they're missing tackles. I mean, it's like, oh, come on, this can't be, you know, somebody better, you know, get Judge Landis and try to do an investigation here. One thing that uh, I thought of when I knew we were going to talk today, and I was listening to some of the things that the Seahawks, who I've always compared to the WWF bad guys, you know, like that's who these Seahawks are to me. They're like the, uh, it's like Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan in WrestleMania 3. I don't know if that analogy means anything to you or not, but uh, (laughs) they were uh, talking quite a bit about how they think that they might be better than the 85 Bears defense, and you, you you covered the 85 Bears for the Chicago Tribune. So what is your opinion? Okay, well, I think they had one great game, um, but it's a long way. To, I mean, I covered the 85 Bears. I mean, they were the 85 Bears were, they didn't allow, you know, they had two shutouts and basically allowed a, a, uh, a fringe touchdown at the end of the Super Bowl to, to New England. I mean, they were just obliterating people. And that 85 Bears team had a, a number of Hall of Famers on it and guys who um, probably should even be in the Hall of Fame, you know, or Hall of Fame-worthy type players if they hadn't gotten hurt. Um, and so, you know, I, listen, I can't, I, I think it's a little premature to say that that was a, an 85 Bears performance. I think there's only going to be one 85 Bears, but those guys were, you know, they played great. And, and I think when you kind of say that, you know, Seattle's kind of the bad guys, I really think the big winner in this whole Super Bowl going forward is going to be Russell Wilson. I mean, this guy, I think... He's is, the exception. He, he, he is. I mean, yeah. I think, but, you know, he was on, he's on Letterman. I think that this guy is going to be... I mean, he's really personable. He's charismatic, you know, and uh, he has a lot to say, and he loves the camera. I mean, I think this guy is going to be, you know, going forward, at least for the next year. I mean, you could have seen this guy all over the place, and I can guarantee you... I wrote today that, um, you know, whenever he retires, let's say 2030 or whenever he goes that long, I, he's going to be in the net. He's going to be, you're going to be listening to him on these, doing these big games if that's what he wants to do because he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback and clearly the networks are going to be all over this guy when he gets done. Yeah, I mean, he's great and I think he's going to be the real, he's going to be a big sports star in the United States if he can continue, you know, doing what he's doing and that Seattle team, you know, they're a young team, and there's no reason to believe they won't be back again next year. Yeah, he is very likable. He is the yin to the yang of, well, I can name 20 guys, but I won't waste our time. There's plenty of, <laughs> there's plenty of uh, ones that fall into the very unlikable category for me. Maybe other people would disagree. but uh, So now that that's over, we move on to the Olympics, which is another huge, huge sports media event that NBC plays, I think, billions of dollars to air. And I wonder... The very first thing that comes to mind is, well, these are played in Russia. So what percentage of this are we going to get live? How much is going to be tape delay? What's kind of NBC's game plan going into this? Well, I mean, I think there's still, it's going to be the same. You know, they're going to, you know, like the London games, everything's going to be available live via streaming. 
Uh, they're going to show all the figure skating live, I believe, on NBC Sports Network, which is a major change. Um, but I think, you know, again, the main emphasis is going to be on that primetime show. Uh, I believe there's an eight- or nine-hour time difference to the East Coast. So, you know, obviously there's so much they can do. Uh, you know, they're going to save the, the, the main stuff for for primetime, like they've always done. Although the figure skating, if you want to watch figure skating, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be kind of not the same thing that you would see during primetime. It's going to be, you know, an actual figure skating performance without, you know, with the breaks and that kind of stuff. I think they're going to use different announcers. I think that's a... a you know that's a different, uh, a different, uh, the change that they're from London was. One of the things they found out in London was that the people who watched the events live, the streaming, were more likely to tune in again at night to watch it on prime time. Which again, I, I I agree. I think that you're kind of, you know, there's different presentations, and if you're that into watching the Olympics. You're going to want to watch the. You want to see how it's covered, and, and you know you're going to want to see it again, and you want to see how you know how they do it in prime time, and how. Um, so I think that uh, you know I think that you know again there would be some I think there's going to be some events that are on tape delay and that are going to frustrate some people, but I pretty much I think that that's going to it's kind of going away now. I think NBC is realizing that they can kind of have it both ways. And with the figure skating, the hockey's going to be the same way, available on one of the networks, one way or another, uh, live as it's played, correct? Right. And so, right. And, and it's going to be there for people who want to watch hockey. But again, you know, the primetime telecasts are pretty much dominated by figure skating and speed skating. Um, more, you know, I mean, the, the usual, the primetime, where, where the bulk of their money is made is skews towards more of a woman's audience. I mean, the, the women actually tune into the Olympics in greater numbers than the men usually, and so they're going to play up. You know, you're going to see a lot of figure skating, and uh, and you're going to see, you know, uh, and it seems like the women athletes are the athletes who are kind of, you know, or you know, it's, it's among the um, the best athletes that they have, or at least the most marketable. In addition to like Sean White and, and Shawnee Davis, the speed skater. Um, you know, again, I think the big question is going to be, and I've been writing about this, is, you know, the whole aspect of having an Olympics in Russia. There's the concerns about the security, which are very real. I've been doing a column right now about, you know, the, their writers are over there, and veteran Olympic writers who are, you have some trepidation about being there because of the security concerns. And I think that that concern is going to be kind of hanging over the games. And also, if, you know, the whole Russia's policies and, uh, you know their uh, politics. You know yeah. politics, and I think that mm -hmm. that's going to be hanging over the games, and it could, you know, cast a shadow over the games. So, it'd be interesting to see. I think at the end of the day, the Olympics usually kind of rises to the occasion. But I think going in, I don't think I ever remember an Olympics with more uncertainty, and certainly not more anxiety. And and I think that I think everyone will be very relieved come the closing ceremonies on February 23rd. If nothing happens, everyone, there's going to be a huge sigh of relief, not just reporters, but I think the, the whole world, because I think that, you know, again, that whole specter, this isn't just, you know, idle threats. There's stuff going on over there. It's all, you know, there, it's a pretty volatile territory. And, uh, so let's just hope and pray that everyone stays safe in the stories about the games and not something else. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was just going to touch on that in the sense that, Obviously, 
NBC sends just about everyone over, so they have people capable of covering any kind of a story. But I, I was, I've been thinking to myself all week. I hope that no, you know, it's not going to be like Al Michaels getting ready to call a baseball game and all of a sudden having to call an earthquake. You know, that it's just on my mind for whatever. Oh no, reason. I mean yeah. they'll, they'll have they have yep. thousands of people over there, and mm-hmm. Brian Williams will be over there. I mean, believe me, they won't say this, but they are plan. They have a plan in place. If something happens, they know exactly how it's going to be handled. It's not going to be like Jim McKay covering, you know, the the Munich situation, which obviously he was known for that and did an unbelievable job, and it took a unique talent for someone like that to do that, to cover that situation. That NBC News is uh, the news team will quickly take over if anything happens, and uh, it's discussed. I mean, they know what the drill is going to be, and let's just hope they don't have to implement that drill. The sportscasts are here with Ed Sherman from the Sherman Report. You can find him on Twitter at Sherman underscore report. Uh, Going to finish up real quick, but before we do, we wanted to mention, as I did before we started the interview, that Mr. Sherman has a new book out, Babe Ruth's Called Shot, The Myth and Mystery of Baseball's Greatest Home Run. It's available right now on Amazon and will be in stores right around uh, Valentine's Day time. Is that right? Yeah, like mid, yeah the perfect Valentine's present. You know, I right, think around yeah. Mid- Mid-February, I couldn't think of a better Valentine's from, for that uh, special person in your life to read about uh, Babe Ruth's club shot home run. So that's thank you for that great marketing idea. <laughs> right. I'm going to go back to the publisher right now. <laughs> so what we're going to do, like we do with all of our uh, Sportscasters Book Club Books of the Month, is uh, we're going to kind of check them out, read them together, and we're going to have Ed back on in a few weeks to answer your questions about the books and my question about the books and uh, – and, and talk all about it. So uh, anything that you might want, because this is unique. We usually don't have the author on before. <laughs> before. So is there anything you might want to send out to the readers to encourage them to participate with us this month? Well, I think that, that you know, the idea of, you know, the ultimate question is, you know, did he really do it? I mean, this is kind of one of baseball's great uh, legends and, and fables almost and how this, and the book is kind of about, you know, the whole backstory of how it really happened leading up to this moment and then what happened afterward and what the writer said, which, I mean, it was, you know, the, the contradictory evidence is just is, is overwhelming. Some people said he did do it. People at the ballpark, you know, were split. I said, like, Democrats and Republicans. It's almost like 50-50. I did a chapter on that. I did a chapter on media accounts. Some people wrote about it. Some writers wrote about it. Some didn't. Some wrote about it, like, the next day, you know, and were they reacting because they, they missed it, you know. And and Babe Ruth's own accounts of the whole, his own quotes. And part of the reason why it makes it such a great story and why it still lives on 81 years later is that we didn't have that modern media, you know, coverage. You know, they didn't even go down to the locker rooms, you know, after the game. I mean, there wasn't any of that. So everything's kind of all left up to the imagination. And then two of my favorite things that uh, happened were a chance to cut. Co- I talked to two people who were at the game. And they weren't just too many people. They weren't uh, just two random people. One of them was uh, Supreme Court, former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. He was 12 years old. I got a chance to talk to him in his chambers, and in his chambers he had a drawing of the called shot, along with the uh, scorecard of the game that someone sent him. And then I also talked to a gentleman by the name of Lincoln Landis, who was the nephew of Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and who happened to attend the game and. Uh, Got their perspective, so that was really neat. So, a lot of stories and uh, kind of a good snapshot in, into really this epic moment in baseball history. 
Well, don't forget ShermanReport.com. You can find Mr. Sherman at Sherman underscore report. Babe Ruth's called shot. The myth and mystery of baseball's greatest home run is available on Amazon now and in stores right around Valentine's Day if you're looking for something for your sweetie. <laughs> and we will talk to you again in a couple weeks where I'm sure we will kind of recap what everything that went down at the Olympics and uh, focus on the book. All right, I want to thank Jonah Carey, Luke Wynn, and Ed Sherman for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this week's podcast and all of our podcasts on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Thank you to everyone who emailed me, and there was many of you, uh, to let me know that there was some kind of issue with Stitcher and potentially the iTunes feed. And thank you for redirecting yourself to the website and to the third-party apps I recommended that for some reason it was working on. Uh, I think we have identified the problem uh, with Stitcher, and that should be fixed by the time you're listening to this, and we should be back to normal. So thanks for bringing it to our attention. Uh, And again, you can find us at sports underscore casters or email us to sportscasters at gmail.com when we screw up again. (laughs) Yeah, when... Uh one last thing for me today, I've been hooked on this game called Hearthstone. I was talking earlier about how I've played nerdy, uh, nerdy games like Magic the Gathering, and Hearthstone is very similar like to the point that it's made by a different company. Uh, I don't know where in a game you can copyright like a mechanic or anything like that. But anyway, if you are fans of StarCraft or WarCraft or World of WarCraft... Hearthstone is set, I think, in the World of Warcraft world, but it's a card game, essentially. But it's free. It's an open beta right now. If you want to check it out, if you want, it's a little more casual than Magic the Gathering, although there are people out there that play it pretty seriously, and there's rankings. and It's real simple to learn, and if, if you're into it, there's a lot to master. And I've been totally hooked on it lately. And you can buy things, but it's not pay to win. It's just kind of pay to get stuff faster, I guess. But uh, I've had a lot of fun with it, and like I said, it's totally free. It's called Hearthstone, and I, you can get it from Battle.net, the uh, online service for that serves StarCraft and Diablo and Warcraft. Check it out if you like things like Magic the Gathering. Very rarely do we get into anything very political, and what I'm about to say isn't necessarily about the politics of the situation, but you've had to have been living under a bridge, pun pun, to not know about the uh, scandal, I guess you would call it, that's going on in New Jersey that has to do with some lane closures at the George Washington Bridge, and uh, maybe Governor Christie knew about this, and if he did, it's the end of his political career, and uh, all kinds of different things. And I was thinking about... Uh, Governor Christie, who has been one of the few politicians over the last 20 years or so who's really kind of, I don't want to say inspired me because I don't think I get into politics enough, but someone who I wanted to believe in. He's the kind of guy who is a lot like me, uh, an Italian guy, uh, a guy who, uh, I don't know, he seems like he could be one of my relatives, and I, I, I've liked the way he's talked to teachers about the the way they sometimes perceive the the realities of of life that they don't always realize that they live in, because you know 
I'm not even going to get into that. But the point is, there's been a lot I've liked about Governor Christie, and I've looked forward to the idea that this guy might be the guy who uh, generally I lean right. Uh, we've talked about this before. Socially uh, moderate, if not left, but generally he's a speaking, very moderate. He's a very moderate right. He, he really fits uh, what I like uh, yeah, I about would, politicians. I and would agree. He's someone that I really was looking forward to to getting behind, and I, I and I'm going to right now. Take him at his word that he didn't know about this, that this was done away from him, that the appropriate people were fired, and that this is what I kind of feel like is an I gotcha kind of thing because he is a legitimate threat to the White House. And I think that there's people on both sides who would prefer he's not involved because he's not right enough for the Tea Party people who he's literally called crazies, quote unquote, in the past. And he's certainly a threat to the people on the left who maybe would be more comfortable with Hillary. And this is getting a little bit more political than I wanted. My point is, if he is lying, if Governor Christie knew about this, if he did this, if this is yet another betrayal from a politician, I'm done. Yeah. I don't care about people who say you're betraying the people who fought for you to have these rights. I'm done. I'm never voting again. I'm never believing in a politician again. I'm never listening to one again. I'm never going to as much as sit down for a state of the union again. I'm done. I'm out. Because it's to the point where you just can't trust anybody. And if this guy is on the list, this guy who has so much, I've so much wanted to identify with, Culturally, politically, ideally, uh, oh, that's not even a word. Listen, I want this guy to be the guy. I want him to be everything I believe he is. And if he is standing out there right now, bold faced lying to me and to everyone else, I'm done. 